Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Uh, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Our guest today is Mr. Dan Cavett of the Cavett and Fulton Law Firm in Tucson, Arizona. Mr. Cavett attained his Juris Doctorate in 1971 and has been focused on medical malpractice since 1975. He's clearly very experienced and qualified to speak on this subject, so we're excited for this episode and to hear anecdotes and real-life examples of cases he has defended. Welcome, Mr. Cavett, to Behind the Knife. Good afternoon. And just to get us started, uh, you know, you've had a long uh, history in defending physicians. What is your uh, personal, how did you get involved in medical malpractice and what's your, um, what brought you to the, to the field? Well, I came out of uh, the military uh, serving as a JAG officer back during Vietnam and began practice in a law firm in Tucson, Arizona, uh, doing products, liability cases, uh, in general personal injury cases, and then started doing uh, defending doctors in hospitals uh, in about 1980 on a full-time basis. And then since that time, I've limited my practice to only the defense of physicians, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners, hospitals, uh, with regard to claims of medical negligence. I also represent doctors before the state regulatory agencies uh, and before credentialing committees at their hospitals. Let's jump right into cases here. For our listeners, if you uh, listen to our full series, we do have an episode with uh, Ms. Michelle Ader, who uh, gives a detailed discussion on some of these questions. So we're not going to discuss them at too much length. But Mr. Cavett is here to provide real life scenarios and cases that he has defended for these situations. So, Mr. Cavett, our first is just starting with how malpractice arises. In your experience, what are the big factors and what are the definitions that we should be know we should know? Medical malpractice is just a fancy name for medical negligence cases. Uh, a negligence claim uh, is defined by a physician failing to do what an ordinary reasonable physician should have done under uh, similar circumstances. That means the doctor is not held to the highest standard uh, of the ivory tower, but what an in-the-trenches physician should have done under those particular circumstances. There are three elements that occur in a case. The first is the plaintiff, who has the burden of proof, that's the patient, has to prove that the physician was negligent. An example would be if you ran the stop sign. An ordinary reasonable person stops at a stop sign. If you run it, that's substandard care. The second thing they have to prove is that that act of negligence, in fact, caused the injury. So if you ran the stop sign but didn't hit anyone or the accident was caused by someone speeding or in the case of a malpractice case by a, a co-defendant uh, who, if you're a surgeon, it might be the anesthesiologist, it might be the nurse or someone else. And then the third thing that has to be proven are the extent of the damages. And those damages depend upon the individual. So if you ran the stop sign and you hit an old Honda Civic, the damage is different than if you hit a brand new Mercedes. 
So the surgery on the wrong knee on an 86-year-old gentleman will certainly have a different value than the surgery on the wrong knee of the 19-year-old soccer player getting ready to go to UCLA. So that's basically what a malpractice claim is. In the case, the patient has the burden of proof, and they have to prove by what we call a preponderance of the evidence, which means it's more likely true than not that there was substandard care. The And they have to do that in most every jurisdiction by an expert witness. And the expert in most states and in our state has to be in the same specialty uh, that you're in. So if you're a general surgeon, they can't have a family practitioner testifying against you. If you're board certified, the expert has to be board certified. Additionally, it can't be the retired uh, expert who's now living in La Jolla on the beach. Uh, Over half of their time has to be in the clinical practice of that specialty or in teaching. So that's that's in a broad view as to what the standard of care is and what has to occur with a malpractice case. Mr. Cavett, can you give us some examples um, as to when you have required detailed notes to defend a case? <clears throat> well, <laughs> over the last nearly 40 years, I've heard doctors think, well, I shouldn't write down very much because if I write too much, uh, they could prove that I did something wrong. Uh, I can tell you over my entire career, I have never had a problem with too much being written in the chart. I have had significant problems almost on a monthly, if not sometimes a weekly basis of too little being written in the chart. A couple of examples, neurosurgery case. Uh, Two years ago, I had a case where a uh, neurosurgeon was sued for having placed a shunt in an Omaya reservoir in an infant's head because of hydrocephalus. The event occurred uh, 11 years prior to the lawsuit being filed. Uh, The statute of limitations for a minor does not begin to run until the minor is 18 years old. So this was many, many years after the event. Fortunately, in that particular case, the neurosurgeon documented in great detail exactly how the shunt was placed, uh, where it was measured from with regard to Coker's point on the side of the head, charted the depth of the shunt uh, and the number of uh, passes that were made. One of the big issues in the case were how many attempts were made in trying to place the shunt in the ventricle. One could say, well, you can look at the x-rays. Unfortunately, uh, there were a number of passes, uh, and the beauty was in the eye of the beholding uh, neuroradiology expert as to how many there were there. So the the physician really helped himself a great deal uh, in that case. Recently, uh, where it has hurt me is I had a case uh, involving, this was a neurosurgery case as well, Uh, involving an allegation that the patient uh, should have had a lumbar puncture and a PCR test done for anticipated herpes encephalitis. The neurosurgeon and neurologist believed the patient had a tumor, and therefore they did not do a lumbar puncture. The patient was not sick, did not have a fever, did not appear ill, did not have any of the classical clinical signs of a patient with herpes encephalitis. And therefore, they believe the correct thing to do 
was to do a surgical biopsy to diagnose the type of tumor so they could decide whether to give chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or and how to treat it. Uh, unfortunately, the doctors never charted their thinking, why they made that determination, why they elected that process and did not uh, proceed with a lumbar puncture in a PCR. I had an orthopedic surgery case last year where the allegation was that the acetabular component in a total hip replacement was not put in at the correct angle, that the angle of inclination was excessive. Uh, unfortunately, the surgeon did not write a very detailed op note. In fact, it was about as curt a note as, as there could be. And therefore, he could not and did not describe what he did and how he did it. Uh, one could now say, well, can you look at the x-rays and see exactly how the angle was placed? Unfortunately, when you've got metal on metal with a uh, regular x-ray, it's very difficult to know exactly what the angle uh, was. So, Mr. Scott, this is a fascinating discussion and is a big part of our, our, our jobs, you know, no matter what part of medicine you're in. One question I had about that was, you know, in, in an academic institution, many times it's the residents that are writing many of these notes and the attendings just sort of sign them. Like, so in that herpes encephalitis case, would it have been adequate if the neurosurgery resident had kind of described, you know, that they didn't have these problems and then the attending sort of signed it without any further documentation or should there also be higher level of documentation? No, I don't think that the attendee needs to write a new note if in fact it is adequately covered by the resident. Unfortunately, in my experience, and I've had many, many cases involving universities, uh, the attending doesn't read the note and that is problematic. What anyone writing a note at any time in every physician should remember, whether it's in your office visit, whether it's in a consult note in the hospital, whether it's uh, an operative note, you need to write in enough detail to know five years from now when you have absolutely no recollection of the patient, you have absolutely no recollection of the procedure, enough information so that you can know what you did and why you did it. And therefore, uh, you're often taught to chart positives. Well, you also need to chart pertinent negatives so that in defending the case, I can show that you looked for a particular problem and it wasn't there. So recently, I had a case involving a fair to diagnose temporal arteritis and giant cell arteritis. And fortunately, in that note, the neurologist wrote that they had palpated the temple arteries. Uh, they wrote exactly what their exam was and exactly what they were looking for. The ophthalmologist who was sued in the case failed to chart hardly anything. And in fact, had come in to see the patient on a Sunday when the vision was decreasing and never even charted that he was even at the hospital. The ophthalmologist ended up settling the case and paying a lot of money. I tried the case for over three and a half weeks this past summer. And fortunately, even though the plaintiff, this 73-year-old man went totally blind as a result of the fear to make the diagnosis, uh, asked the jury for six to eight million dollars. And fortunately, we won the case and got a defense verdict. And a great deal of that was based upon the fact that my doctors had, had detailed uh, notes with regard to their examinations and their thought process. Wow. This, I, yeah, I think this 
cannot be more important of a point to emphasize. And it's kind of one of those things that we know. And then, you know, as our jobs get busy and we, we sort of neglect at times on the, on the same note, informed consent. I, I particularly practice vascular surgery and we have very ill patients that uh, and we're doing relatively big things on them. And they really, the, the idea of them understanding and consenting to all the possibilities with surgery is probably unrealistic. What problems have you run into with informed consent in the malpractice world? Well, to first deal with the, the issue of a, a disabled patient or one with who may be a stroke patient or uh, an elderly patient, uh, you're going to have to have uh, that patient understand. If that patient doesn't, uh, you have to have a family member there, a spouse, a guardian who can make that decision for them. Because informed consent is a real misconception by physicians. It happens all the time. It happened to me two weeks ago when I went to get my colonoscopy. Doctors, for some reason, believe that informed consent is a piece of paper. They know that the hospital is going to be all over them if they haven't got the informed consent signed prior to the procedure and it's in the chart. So they think it's a piece of paper. It's not. It's a process. If you touch me and you do my vein surgery, whatever it may be, and I have not given you consent to do that, that's a battery. In order for you to touch me, I can consent. But to give the consent, the consent has to be informed, which means you have to tell me the nature of the procedure you're going to do, the benefits of the procedure, the alternatives to that procedure, and the risks in uh, the risks to that procedure. So if you're a general surgeon and you're getting ready to do a lap coli, you cannot just simply put in your chart, advise the patient of all the risks, period. That ain't going to work. What you need to do is you have to tell the patient, here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to proceed laparoscopically with a scope. Also, we may have to convert to an open procedure and you explain that. You tell them uh, there may be other organs damaged. We may end up clipping, suturing, or severing uh, your common bile duct. You may end up needing another surgery. You may end up with an infection. You may end up dying. Now, you cannot have the scrub tech or the circulating nurse hand somebody a form that looks like the Hertz rental car contract uh, while they're in pre-op holding. Now, for most general surgeons, fortunately, they'll have brochures in their offices uh, that explain what it is, have nice colored pictures and have the risks on it. I suggest giving that to the patient. I suggest having a procedure specific consent form. I suggest, and in fact, command that you read it to the patient, that you initial it and that you sign it yourself. Now, most of the hospitals in the last five years have the requirement that an informed consent form is signed by the physician so that you can verify the fact that you, in fact, gave the patient uh, the information so they could consent. Your medical assistant, a technician, a nurse cannot get informed consent. So when I went to get my colonoscopy two weeks ago and some MA came in and said, Mr. Cavett, you need to sign here. No doctor had explained anything to me. What I signed is worthless. So doctors need to understand that. 
Now, I've had experiences in the past where I've had difficulty because of that and also had success when it's been done right. And I give you a couple of the examples. Mr. Cabot, before you go into the examples, I have two questions for you. So the first one is, you know, on these academic teams where there's a resident and like you said, in general surgery, often in clinics, we have the brochures and we have, if it's an elective case, the ability in clinic to obtain and discuss that informed consent for the procedure. And then on the day of, they come in and actually sign the document if the 30 days have lapsed. And uh, I've had many instances, and I'm sure my colleagues here have as well, where you just kind of reiterate some of the risks prior to them signing that consent form. And the patients, you know, sound like this is the first time they've heard this information, even though it is not. So how, from that legal perspective, is that viewed as far as, you know, was informed consent properly attained? And my second question, in the example of your colonoscopy, you have signed a signature on this form, but in your mind, it was not a proper informed consent. So um, in that situation, there is a signed legal paper. Is, how does that hold up in court? Okay, yeah, two questions there. Uh, for me, it's going to hold up because of what I do for a living and I know how to read. So I would have a hard time denying that. The first thing you asked me about is what if the patient comes back and you've covered that in the office before with them and now they act like they don't understand it? It's the same thing that happens when I sit down and explain to a doctor the first time they're in my office and have been sued how the lawsuit's going to go. They hear and comprehend about half of what I've told them. So, and that's just human nature. So you'll need to repeat it again and just document as the resident that you have repeated and gone through those risks and write it out in your, in your note, in that consult, when you're seeing the patient, don't just say reviewed all the risks again, write it down uh, and, and specifically list those so that you can be bulletproof when I'm trying to defend you a few years from now. Now, when you ask me about uh, the problem, uh, I had a neurosurgery client who had been sued for damaging a recurrent laryngeal nerve many years before, uh, and he had a basic hospital kind of fill in the blank uh, for the procedure consent form. Uh, and I told him, don't use that. You need a procedure specific form. Um, and, and I'll digress for a second. If you're a general surgeon and you're doing a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, don't tell the patient that's what you're doing. Tell them I'm going to be cutting out your gallbladder because nobody knows what a laparoscopic cholecystectomy is unless you're a physician or a medical malpractice lawyer. So write down exactly what you're doing. Now, in this particular case, my doctor followed my advice and he had a procedure specific form. About six years later, I'm defending him in a case where the patient has sued, claiming she was not informed of the risk of the procedure. And if she had been, she would not have had the procedure. It was an anterior cervical fusion. The risks of those can involve damaging the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And the results of that, as you know, can be difficulty swallowing, difficulty speaking, hoarseness, damage to the vocal cords. And he had each one of those listed as separate bullet, pr- bullet points on the consent form with a line for the patient to initial. Uh, and the patient had signed it. 
So I'm deposing the client or the patient in my office. Uh, and I handed her exhibit A and said, is that your signature? Yes, it is. This is the consent form that you signed. Yes, it is. You were advised of these uh, risks, were you not? No, I wasn't. Did you initial next each of those? Yes, I did. Did you read the form? No, I didn't. Why not? I don't know how to read. Now, at that point, I thought, well, I'm fooled once again. So since then, I have advised every doctor to whether you read the informed consent form verbatim or you paraphrase each of the risks, but then you sign it so you can testify later. I informed the patient of those risks. Wow. That is uh, quite a dramatic example. You've defended cases when the physician has admitted to a mistake or apologized. What has resulted then with regards to the litigation when that occurs? Well, t- typically, I've had situations where the doctor has dealt right up front with the problem, told the patient, here is this complication that occurred, uh, and I am very sorry that this happened. And I've had the situation because of the candid nature of the, phy- of the physician with the patient that the doctor didn't even get sued. I've had the situation where the doctor has told the patient, I'm sorry this happened and dealt with it uh, up front. And as a result, I was able to resolve the case very favorably because the plaintiff's lawyer knew that the doctor had not intended this, which is generally always the case, but that he would be well received by a jury. That was a case where I had a wonderful orthopedic surgeon who'd been a professor at one of the major universities in the country uh, who was practicing and doing a biceps tendon repair and unfortunately severed the nerve instead of the uh, tendon. Uh, And the patient, who was a young serviceman who had a brilliant career in the military, completely lost the use of of his right dominant hand. And the doctor readily admitted it right away, told the patient, uh, and in fact, flew the patient to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester to try and get it fixed. But they were unable to, and he paid for it with his own nickel. I was able to settle that case for far less than I would have had to had he not uh, done so. Now, the law is if you apologize and say, I'm sorry for what occurred, that cannot be used against you in court. If you say, I'm sorry, I committed malpractice, I did the surgery on your left knee instead of your right knee, (laughs) that can be used against you because that's an admission. But simply saying, I'm sorry that we got the result that we did uh, is not going to be admitted into court against you. Continuing along the same lines that you said, um, with the advent of timeout, it is now standard of care. We definitely hear less and less about wrong body parts being operated. Do you still deal with these issues? And if so, are the consequences now worse because it is supposed to be standardized, done in a um, very standardized fashion? Well, as you know, uh, it's been a number of years now. We've had the universal protocol, uh, which requires at the start of the procedure, Uh, for the circulating nurse to announce to the entire surgical team, do we have patient so-and-so, here's the procedure we're doing, and here's the site of the procedure. 
unfortunately, my experience has been even now and maybe even more so now, the more that these occur, that the surgical team and generally often the surgeon, this is like when you get on the airplane and they've told you by the attendant, uh, look for the exit closest to you in front of you. Look at the one behind you. If the oxygen mask drops, put it on you first. If you're a frequent flyer, you don't even hear that anymore. And I tend to think that that happens an awful lot in surgical suites and nobody pays attention. As a result, I've had general surgeons where they've taken uh, the left thyroid instead of the right thyroid. They didn't bother to look at the x-rays that are supposed to be up in the operating room under the hospital uh, protocols and procedures. Uh, I've had them as recently as a year and a half ago uh, do the right knee instead of the left knee. I've had right ankles instead of left ankles, the wrong cruciate ligaments. Uh, the worst case I ever had a few years ago was on a 14-year-old boy where they removed his left testicle and then later found out they should have removed the right testicle. And it happens. Uh, and it happens because people don't stop, look, and listen. And part of the basic thesis that I want to try and convey to any young doctors, any residents, any attendings and, and physicians, whether she's been practicing 20 years or 40 years, is stop, look, and listen. Um, if you do so, uh, I mean, the reason I've been in business for so many years is because not because surgeons uh, and clinicians are not smart, not because they don't know the medicine, not because they technically do not have the skill, but it's because they've got too many widgets coming down the conveyor belt. Uh, they are overly confident in what they're doing and make assumptions that aren't there. Uh, and they don't slow down, stop, look and listen. And we'll talk in a few minutes about listening to the nurses, listening to the patient, listening to the uh, resident when they're trying to tell them something. That is quite sage advice. And, and I can say from my own experience, uh, you know, I noticed the largely ignored uh, timeouts in, in some of cases I've been involved with. And so it's a great reminder for us to take everything uh, very seriously. How, how have you or the prosecution used, uh, you know, surgical society guidelines in your cases, uh, either to help or to um, prosecute? They are very, very significant, and they're used almost uh, on a weekly, if not monthly basis uh, in my practice, either in defending the case or having to deal with it uh, opposed to me. The guideline, uh, we just mentioned surgical timeouts a week ago. General surgeon was being deposed and was and astonishingly said that she was unaware of what the universal protocol was. This was a retained sponge case, which is a never event, but unfortunately can happen. A lot of cases that I have deal with with obstetrical cases and bad baby cases. And so we're using the ACOG guidelines with regard to the reading of external fetal heart monitors. Uh, there are other surgical guidelines. Now, the, now the, the society, whether it's the American College of uh, Surgeons, uh, general surgeons, neurosurgeons, anesthesiology will have 
preferences right at the start saying these are not intended to be the standard of care. These are merely guidelines for the practice uh, of whatever the specialty may be. They are interpreted by every jury as being the guideline. So if the surgical society sets forth, here's how the procedure we recommend it be done and you don't follow that, you're going to have a problem. If the hospital has set up policies and procedures and they've been adopted by the Department of Surgery, you surely must be familiar with those and you need to know what they say and you need to follow them. Because if you don't follow them, it's going to be interpreted that you have violated the standard of care. So I use them very frequently to try and support what my physician has done by saying she complied with those guidelines. And on the other hand, the plaintiff's attorney has, is trying all the time to say the standard of care was violated by not complying with the guidelines. Uh, that's very interesting. I've been a chair of the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons Clinical Practice Guideline Committee for several years. I've written 29 national guidelines myself. And so that's in a way disheartening to hear because we really do try not to paint surgeons into a corner and we try to give just evidence-based recommendations because they, we know that they're not prescriptive. So uh, a little bit, a little bit of a downer there on a personal note. Well, doctor, exactly what you're saying is you want to say we're not setting the standard. These are our recommendations so that we can improve the practice. The problem is, although it's stated they may not, they are at the standard, when you're then being cross-examined and you're in the Society of Colorectal Surgeons has made these as recommendations for for good practice, you then have to be able to explain why you chose not to follow those. Now, there may, yeah, that's, that, there may be very good reasons why you didn't choose to follow those, but you're going to have to be able to explain that. And, and therefore, if they're the type of thing that could be something that you would have put into a, an op note or a progress note or a consult note is I did this test or I did this procedure in this fashion or I dissected in this particular way so that you can then show why you did it in that fashion, you'll be okay. Uh, but if you have no idea what the guideline said, and if you have no uh, explanation as to why you didn't follow what had been recommended four years ago, um, it's going to be problematic. Well, let's switch gears here real quick, and let's talk a little bit about staying out of the courtroom. So much of the non-litigation is actually due to what we have is when we get a good rapport with our patients and that excellent patient-physician relationship. So uh, do you have any recommendations out there, obviously, from the lawyer standpoint? I know I know we talk to our junior residents or trainees about uh, building rapport with our patients that we can kind of preemptively boost patient perception and um, how to go about that. Well, I think uh, that is extremely, extremely important. Uh, I have had physicians who are nice people who have treated their patients with respect in the way that you would want your, your mother, your spouse, your child to be treated at all times uh, that have had bad outcomes and not, not been sued, or at least uh, the, the, the patient didn't immediately run to the doctor. I suggest to every doctor from the very start of setting up your practice, you set up your practice in a fashion that is patient friendly. Oftentimes you walk into a doctor's office now and you feel like you're walking into the uh, holding tank of the county prison. 
Uh, there's no one sitting there except behind glass windows. And and then somebody you walk up to them and they say, uh, Mr. Jones, why are you here? Well, I'm here for my uh, hemorrhoids. I'm here for my erectile dysfunction, which is announced to the entire lobby. <laughs> that is not the way to do it. Uh, the next thing is putting uh, call your office sometime on the phone and see how long it takes to talk to a human being. See, after someone has had a surgical procedure and they've called their physician, how long it takes to get back to them and whether the doctor actually ever calls them back or whether they're simply called by some medical assistant who's who is taking uh, a history or information that then is going to be passed on to you so you can make a decision. Keep in mind, do you want your medical license being held in the hand of a medical assistant who has just come to you from the McDonald's French fry line three weeks before deciding what is important to tell you or not tell you about the patient's care? Now, what I hear from doctors all the time is I don't have time to do that. Well, that is a real that is a real problem. But the doctor that calls you back, the doctor that takes the time to answer your questions uh, will be well received uh, by the patient. The worst situation I had was a year ago where the patient uh, had an appointment at two o'clock, waited for 45 minutes in the lobby before being called back to an examining room, went to the examining room and was waiting there. The surgeon then came in. The patient wasn't there, but her husband was there. And the surgeon said, where's Ms. Jones? And the husband said, I'm sorry, sir. We were waiting here in the examining room for 45 minutes, and my wife had to go to the bathroom. And the surgeon said, well, tell her to go piss on her own time. You can imagine the effect of that. Now, it's rare that I have that direct uh of a verbalization of an attitude, but unfortunately, as you well know, in your career, you've seen doctors that unfortunately will convey that type of attitude, whether it's with the direct language or not, and that is not missed upon the patient. The physician, on the other hand, who is gracious and accommodating and apologetic for running later, whatever it may well be, is absolutely forgiven by that patient uh, and will not have a problem. So the relationship with the patient, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a doctor, a lawyer, the, the guy repairing your car, the way you treat your customer can have make all the difference in the world. And I've seen it many, many, many times. Switching gears a little bit here in the, you know, 40 plus years that you've been doing this, I think one of the biggest changes has been the uh, advances in the electronic medical record, the uh, prominence of social media, and even these websites with rating doctors. And so have you had any experience with these platforms changing the way you build a case, the way you're able to defend your physicians, or has it uh, have there been situations where it's hurt the your defendant? Uh, all of the above. The advent of electronic medical records has, as you well know, many, many, many advantages, but it also has significant disadvantages. The disadvantage is for the doctor who is 
is too hurried and simply just clicks on on items uh, and doesn't write out exactly what is occurring. The other problem in a big problem we have, not only with regard to office practices and a patient returning on multiple visits, but is in a hospital record of simply repopulating the history. So you can read a hospital record and it looks like the patient's condition hadn't changed for 10 days because uh, somebody just simply regurgitates the history that occurs every time. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, the drop down screens and just clicking on something uh, can be problematic. Uh, or on the other hand, it can show that perhaps you, in fact, really did it. It used to be I could tell I'd defend a doctor and, and who had treated a patient for 20 years. And I could almost tell how long the patient, doctor had been in practice. The first records uh, were very detailed and fairly voluminous and legible. As time went on, they became skimpier and skimpier, used abbreviations, and by the end, sometimes were hardly legible. With the electronic medical record, uh, you know, we don't have that exact problem, but there are variations. So my advice would be make sure that after you write something in the electronic medical record, you read it and make sure it says what you wanted it to say. And one big problem with regard is we all know from um, primary care physicians is instead of the doctor coming to the patient, touching the patient, uh, listening to the patient, they're sitting at a computer screen 10 feet away, uh, rarely making eye contact with the patient and the whole experience is not what it used to be. As surgeons, you know, we hope to, to develop the relationships and, and do all the proper things and document well enough that we um, never, you know, have to undergo this process. But unfortunately, many of us will throughout our careers. And one thing that's very much an afterthought to us is when applying for jobs and, and things like that is the malpractice insurance that is associated with that. I've talked to some, uh, you know, mentors and they mentioned things like make sure there's a tail on it where that way, if you have a case that happened at a previous job, you're still covered for it later. Do you have any recommendations? I, I don't even know if you're familiar with malpractice insurance to any extent, but you know, if, if, if I'm, you know, I want someone that has 40 years of experience and can and defend me, um, such as yourself. What, do you have any recommendations for surgeons as far as what to look for in their malpractice insurance and make sure that is covered? Well, let me cover a couple of things. Uh, that's something that is what I do. Most insurance policies, uh, malpractice policies, other than which are unlike your automobile policy, are claims made policies. So if you have a bad outcome as a surgeon or you believe your patient is pretty squirrely and you had an outcome that wasn't good, you need to immediately notify your insurance company of that event and put them on notice. Now, a lot of doctors think, gee, I don't want to tell anybody about that. It may not turn into anything and I'm afraid they may raise my rates. Well, that's not the real risk. The risk is that you're insured with the ABC insurance company this year and then and you had that problem. And then a year and a half from now, you're insured with a different insurance company. You did not tell the new insurance company about the bad outcome you had a year and a half or two years ago. And then you get sued a year after that. You may not have any coverage because the coverage would be with the policy, with the company that you made the claim and put them on notice with regard to. 
put them on that notice. If you go to a new company, yes, you will need to fill out on the application and tell them about events. Then they've on notice with it, and then you will have coverage with with regard to that. If you retire, you need to get tail coverage, it's called. What that means is you're no longer practicing and a claim may not be made because no lawsuit was made. The client hadn't told you that. And so uh, you've now retired and two years goes by. It's within the statute of limitations or it's a minor and it's beyond the two years. And all of a sudden you get sued. If you did not buy tail coverage, you won't have any coverage. So my point is notify the carriers when you have a, a bad outcome. Uh, if you change uh, or retire, you need to get tail. You need to get tail coverage. The attorney is generally selected or a panel of attorneys uh, the carrier will have. And here in, in, in Tucson, we have over a million and a half people here. The major companies, uh, carriers will have about three to four different, uh, lawyers on their panel, uh, and they will assign you, uh, the lawyer. But you can ask and say who's on the panel, and most companies will then let you select from that panel. So, Mr. Cavett, um, just to conclude, what is your general advice um, for the general surgery residents, young attendings, and faculty? Nowadays, we have fewer cases filed than we did 20 and 30 years ago. The volume of them has dropped tremendously, but the exposure to the cases that are filed are far more significant. And therefore, unless... Most cases have a value of at least a half million dollars or more. Most lawyers won't take the case because the best thing that ever happened is for defendants is the contingent fee uh, system, where if the plaintiff's lawyer doesn't win, they don't get anything. And so therefore, the lawyers now are very, very selective in the cases they take. And one of the main reasons is because it costs a huge amount of money to prosecute these cases. A couple of things that I want to mention uh, that you need to be aware of that we haven't covered is there's no such thing as a curbside consult. If you're the cardiologist and walking down the hall and the ER doctor comes out and says, would you take a look at this EKG? Uh, are there uh, what are the ST segments? Do I have an issue? And that ER doctor relies on what you tell him or her. You're going to be held liable. Uh, so even though you don't know the patient, even though you haven't been hired, you may have liability. I began this by saying what you need to do is stop, look and listen. The patient will often tell you what the problem is. Too often, doctors will pick up the chart on the outside of the door or now look at the medical EMR and have a pre-diagnosed thought in their mind before they ever even walk into the room and see the patient. Obviously, that's a problem. So listen to the patient. After the surgery, when the patient tells you they can't feel their foot or that they have blood in their stool or whatever it may be, listen to them. Return the phone calls. Get the information yourself. Don't rely upon somebody else who does not have the training who can control the patient's life, your financial future, and your license before the medical board. 
If you have a medical board complaint, don't try to handle it yourself any more than you try to do your own root canal. Many doctors think, oh, I can handle this. This is no big deal. Then all of a sudden they're placed on restriction. Uh, there are issues coming up that that they're being disciplined. And then they come and hire me. And by that time, the horse is way out of the barn. So many carriers, your insurance company will provide defense for you or some coverage for you before the licensing board. Also, with regard to credentialing issues at hospitals, they will provide that. So be sure and and do that. Don't ever alter your medical record. If you're going to make a, a change, do so, but date it, time it, and state the reason. We mentioned electronic medical records a minute ago. I get a request all the time for an audit of, of that where we can get the metadata on it and come back and show exactly when the entry was made, who made it, the time it was made, and often from what computer it was made. So uh, you need to do that. Another thing of real significance is don't defend yourself in the chart. Don't blame another physician. Don't lay it off on somebody else unless you're stating facts. Just state the facts of what happened. But too often I'll see, and unfortunately it's especially with surgeons, people's egos getting in the way, and they want to vent in the medical record. Uh, a patient is entitled to know the truth. The facts of the procedure should be stated, but uh, personal animosity, uh, vendettas, grudges um, should not ever be written out in a medical chart. And I've seen that a number of times over my career that creates problems, obviously, uh, for everyone. You need to document every phone call. If you're at home and you get the call from the resident, you need to document you made that you got the call. If you're the resident and you or and you made the call, you need to document what you did and what you said and what you were told. Uh, I've had the situation and remember this, the nurse on your, the floor is either your best friend or your worst enemy. That nurse can save your practice and can save your career or the way you treat that nurse, he or she can become your worst enemy. The nurse calls the physician at night and says, doctor, the external fetal heart monitor is showing what I believe is a pattern of late decelerations. What do you want me to do? And the physician says to her, turn up the Pitocin and don't call me again. And that gets written in the medical chart. Good luck trying to defend that case when all of a sudden you end up with a baby who has cerebral palsy. Just treat the patients, listen to them, listen to the nurses, listen to the resident, document facts, respond, include all phone calls in the chart, who you spoke with, the length of the call, what was said, and what you decided. And I often, and nowadays with our, with our iPhones, uh, they have dictating 
uh, things I used to recommend to doctors, keep a notepad by your bed. Then I said, I recommend to keep a handheld tape recorder by your bed. And now just simply pull up your phone and dictate, you know, 2.30 a.m., receive the call of a torsion testicle. I recommended whatever, whatever uh, to who. Um, it doesn't take but a second, and it will make all the difference in the world. Wow, this has been just such uh, great advice on on many levels, and uh, we really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Well, Mr. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Uh, again, we really appreciate your thoughts, and uh, I know that I myself have learned several things, and I speak for a lot of our viewers. So we look back forward to having you back here on Behind the Knife. Take care. Take care of the patients. You do great work. Until next time, dominate the day. 